0: You're the quantum mechanics,
1: yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everyone in between. I make an immediate apology, I am talking to you from behind some kind of cold like thing which has descended itself onto my nose overnight. So I'm sort of nasally and breathy. I do apologise. I hope it won't turn into some kind of medical ASMR thing. But um, uh, for that reason, we're also apart. It's sort of like the days of COVID. I didn't want to uh, bring it to your family, Peter. It seemed most unfair.
0: Yeah, that's fair enough. I I appreciate that you're not doing that. Thank you. (laughs) I I also appreciate that you're here because I know what it's like when you're feeling kind of rough and (laughs) coldy the last thing you want to do is talk to me about the paranormal (laughs) actually that's not that's not true i was kind of i was looking forward to this and i woke up and i thought
1: oh no what am i gonna do but um it's amazing what lem sip and vitamins and loads of water and some apple juice can do so i'm sort of i think i'm temporarily fixed for about an hour and a
0: half okay okay we'll crack on then let's let's do it I'm sure the LEMSIP uh, and all the other stuff that you're doing is helping to clear the congestion in your nose, which is my segue into the episode. Yay! A (laughs) snot episode! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I have to say, Ben, that this episode has all the key ingredients of a classic quantum mechanics episode. It started with some weirdness that happened to me which led to some internet searching and then on to a great book that I have been consuming for the last week. And then, yes, it was a book that was much chunkier than I was expecting in <laughs> true quantum mechanics style. You're staying
1: with the quantum mechanics tradition.
0: Excellent. Yeah, yeah, but it, it, it was it's an incredibly fascinating book and it ties into uh, a lot of the themes we've talked about before on the podcast. So as we progress, hopefully uh, all that will become clear. Now, one thing I can promise you about this episode, Ben, is it's going to stink. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I won't be able to smell it, so that's fine.
0: Uh, yeah, well, it, it's going to stink in an interesting way because I want to talk about supernatural smells or a cultish olfactory, which is a new word I've learned this week. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like the best insult ever. <laughs> yeah. Before I get on to the strange experience that sent me off on this journey, um, should we start with some interesting facts about smell? Who knows what they might be? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Sorry, I'll keep the puns away. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, no. This is this is puntastic. This has the potential for puntastic. This episode. Um, ben, which animal do you think has the best sense of smell? Um. Well, that's a good question. I
1: suppose dogs are renowned for it, um, but I wonder whether it's something like a shark, because they can supposedly smell blood in a drop of water a mile away or something. I'm, I'm going to say it's some sort
0: of marine life. Interesting, because yeah, you're right in the fact that most people do assume that it's the dog, but actually when I tell you the answer, you're going to go, oh, that makes complete sense. The animal with the best sense of smell is supposed to be the elephant. Oh, (laughs) yeah, that does sort of make sense, yeah. In a 2014 study, researchers found that the elephant, because of its trunk, particularly the African elephant, has the largest number of genes relating to smell. The elephant has nearly 2,000 olfactory receptors. Dogs have half that amount, so they have got a really good sense of smell, dogs, but half of an elephant. Humans have less than a quarter of that. I've got less than a
1: quarter of a quarter of that at the moment. But I, yes, I never put elephants down as being so um, so scent aware, I suppose. M- I guess they would use it as much as any other animal, but not for hunting. I would have thought
0: like a carnivore would have had a better sense of smell, but yeah. Well, there is, uh, there's a really interesting fact about the African elephant, because again, research suggests that they can tell... The difference by smell between different human groups. They can sense the difference between the Masai, who would sometimes hunt them, and the smell of the Kamba, who rarely pose the threat, and change their behaviour when they smell one of those two different human groups.
1: That's really interesting. Oh, that's so fascinating, smart. isn't it?
0: Yeah, really smart. Yeah, it is. I think you might be barking up the wrong tree with your uh, marine. <laughs> Uh, thoughts on the best animal smell because at the opposite end of the scale of smell are the dolphins and whales who have no sense of smell at all as they lack an olfactory system. So I think this is true of a lot of marine animals. They don't actually have the necessary kit to be out of smell at all, which is interesting. Right, okay. I'm not sure about sharks, actually, because there is that thing of they can... Smell blood in the water, but I do wonder if it's more. Maybe they can make up for it in other senses. Maybe they can taste it rather than smell it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, in humans, five percent of our brain is taken up by the olfactory organ, which obviously facilitates smell. That's that allows us to distinguish between millions of different scents. Smell. This is fascinating. Is believed to be the most accurate sense. A study showed that people can remember with sixty-five percent accuracy a smell a year after it happened. This compares to only fifty percent for visual recall. Mm. Yeah, that is I I I understand that, yeah. Um because
1: you, you can smell something, it takes you right back to your grand's kitchen or yeah, exactly. some other such
0: place. Yeah. I'll come on to a bit more about that uh, a little bit later, but now, uh, there is some debate about this next fact, but research suggests you can't smell in your sleep. Your sense of smell shuts down, <laughs> especially during, during REM sleep, which I, like I said, I think there is some differing opinions about that. But uh, the article I read, uh, which was funnily titled You Can't Wake Up and Smell the Coffee, which I thought was funny. <laughs> that is good. <laughs> yeah, suggests we can't smell in our sleep. Uh, we, we, and actually I'm kind of when you think back about it I guess you can in that kind of waking state but i I cannot remember a dream in which I've had a sense of smell I don't know if you can not in a dream no no I
1: can I can remember being woken up by a pungent smell but that might just be because I woke up and then there was a pungent smell like um uh, like the the smell of bacon cooking or something like that right
0: right. And was that a smell of bacon that was actually cooking, or was it a kind of... Yeah, yeah, no, it um, was, yeah, yeah. It it wasn't a phantom bacon sandwich. Um, (laughs) We are really keen on phantom sandwiches on this show. (laughs) Yeah. Now, the next thing slightly blew my mind. Uh, Tel Aviv University Chemistry Department is developing a chemical fingerprint technology. The Israeli chemists say that what we eat drugs we take gender and even our state of mind mean that each person's sweat is chemically unique which made me wonder Ben in the future rather than picking out a criminal out of a lineup from behind a screen I guess we could be asked to go and give them a good sniff
1: (laughs) yeah well hang on that made me remember we're talking about dogs don't they i'm sure i've seen sniffer dogs be given someone's t-shirt
0: yeah I'm running to off to then go
1: and track them down yeah because
0: yeah, it is yeah it's it's a unique scent so yes they're trying to mm. apply that to the field of uh, of crime uh, i was going to say prevention crime solving and prevention so that's very interesting um we're going to move on to the potential paranormal event that happened in my car a minute ago which i've been trailing on the podcast for a couple of weeks. I hope people <laughs> haven't got too excited and go, it's a bit boring. Um, but it creeped it, it me out a bit. Before we get on to that, I have found an amazing automotive fact relating to smell. So Ben, we all love that new car smell, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not a genuine natural smell. To say, I thought it was carpets, the smell of the carpets and the plastic. Apparently not. It is sprayed on by car manufacturers and lasts for about six weeks, deliberately sprayed into the car. No. Yeah. Um, and in fact, Rolls-Royce took have taken the concept to the next level. They have reproduced the scent of a 1965 Silver Cloud Rolls-Royce, which is sprayed under the seats of new models to give the new roller its classic smell. <sighs> yeah, of course they have. Although <laughs> oh, <they were, laughs> That's ridiculous. I was thinking, how do they kind of go, oh, yes, that's the smell of a 1965 Silver Cloud Rolls Royce? Because I'm assuming in the 60s they weren't spraying that new car smell in, so, yeah. No, but also, who decided that new car smell was new car smell? I don't know. I guess it's a way of, um, yeah, that's true. Maybe it's just, that's interesting thought, isn't it? Maybe it's just a pleasant smell that... They want to kind of associate in our mind, so we buy a new car rather than picking up a second-hand one.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that is kind of bizarre, but, yeah, it does make sense because it does disappointingly fade, but... I just thought that's because you used it and all the bits sort of... I genuinely would have said, oh, it's because the plastic's new and has just been moulded and the carpet's just been fitted and the glue is fresh and all that. Yeah, because you get but, that new no,
0: carpet that smell as well, don't you, when you have a new carpet fitted? Is, you do get that new is carpet Is that a spray smell, as yeah. well?
1: <laughs> it it's always, like the biggest... me, smells
0: of hamsters. <laughs> it's the biggest conspiracy in the modern world. <laughs> I'm furious. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me move on, as we've got that car connection, let me move on to what happens to me in my car. Now, uh, regular listeners to the podcast will know that Ben and I have had a few kind of weird experiences over the last couple of months regarding our cars and strange things happening with doors and windows opening, all kinds of stuff, right? Yes, yes. So, this, uh, so to, to set the story... We had, after we recorded the episode with Tommy Trelawney, what I generally do is when we release them on a Monday, I, I usually have a drive uh, to a job I do and I have a listen to the episode as soon as it comes out just to kind of you know, check check there's no faults and, you know, just to give it a, another listen back. So on the way to my meeting, I was listening to the uh, Tommy Trelawney episode. And then there was about 10 minutes left by the time I got to the meeting. When I finished, I drove home again. I started listening to the Tommy Trill episode and it finished. And what happens, I think I was listening to it on uh, Apple Podcasts. And it then kind of keys up one of the episodes that you were listening to before that one, if you've got a few minutes left. And what it queued up was the episode we did about New Year's Eve. So I thought, oh well, look, I've only got ten minutes of my drive left. or so I will just press and listen to it. And it was the story I was telling about do you remember the one about the ghost that went to a New Year's Eve party, Gate Crash to New Year's Eve party?
1: Yes. Yeah, it was it was enjoying itself and using the toilet and everything. Yeah. yeah.
0: So I was listening to that bit and that in fact that toilet bit, because he this ghost apparently was in the loo and there was a queue for me outside because everyone thought someone was in there. And they could hear someone coughing in the toilet so they didn't go in. When they opened the door, no one was there. It was this phantom uh, guest. And I thought to myself, oh, I said coughing in the toilet. What I was hinting at was the ghost was vomiting in the toilet. And, you know, you, you have those things in oh. your break. And I thought to myself, oh, should I have said well, vomiting? Is it clear? You know, you kind of question when you listen back to these things. Of, Is it clear what I'm alluding to? And at that very moment... I'm driving down the M40, I'm doing 70 miles an hour, my car filled with this incredible smell of vomit. That is very odd. That is very odd. How long did it last? Well, this is the thing, because afterwards I've been kind of trying to post-rationalise and you kind of think, oh, maybe someone was sick by the side of the road, okay, or out of their car somewhere and... I'm driving along, okay, I'm going 70, so I could see why that might come in if you've driven past it. But it went on for what seemed to me a couple of minutes, this smell, which at 70 miles an hour on a motorway, you think I would have cleared it by then. Maybe not, but, you know. I have got one theory, but to to lay that theory out, whereabouts on the M40 were you? I reckon uh, it was somewhere between maidenhead and tame go give me your theory um there is a uh,
1: an incinerator Ah. up near beaconsfield and it's sometimes absolutely honks when you drive through that bit of the motorway just before you get to the services and does that smell vomity Mm. it smells of all sorts of different things sometimes it smells like burnt rubber um sometimes it smells toilety I've right. never had vomiting, but sometimes I've I've been caught aside by it, thinking, is my car on fire? Is there something wrong with my right, car? Right, right. And then I remember and carry on. But that isn't to denigrate what you're saying, because that is that is an H-case possibility.
0: Well, I did do a bit of Googling about, you know, w- weird smells in that area, and I I came across a story from 2020, a bit further up the motorway towards Birmingham, that people reported the smell of vomit on the M40. Uh, And it was, again, it was a little bit of a mystery, but the the best explanation was, because it was a very hot summer, that it was something to do with farmers putting manure onto the land and with the heat it created Uh this smell. However, we know what the weather's been like recently. It was freezing cold on the day that... I was Mm, driving mm. so I don't know the connection it freaked me out a little bit and I've kind of been post-rationalizing it and the importance of it is what it led to it got me thinking about smells in relation to the paranormal now I don't that's a great thought and I don't know if it's the same for you Ben but I don't necessarily think about smells in relation to supernatural stories it's not the first thing that comes to mind. No. No, only...
1: Um, the two things that come to mind are like demon smells. So people reporting sulfury type of things. And then it seems to be quite common that people will smell tobacco smoke. Yeah. Or a perfume that is related to somebody that's passed over. Um, so it, if your granddad smoked heavily... You might smell a pipe or something, and you might think, "Oh, that's him."
0: I, you're you're absolutely right, and uh, I will come on. to I'm actually coming on to a lot of what you've talked about there in a second, because and actually, it reminded me while you were talking, uh, saying we don't think much about smells, but it reminds me of when we. Did one of our first episodes with Nikki, which I think over the years we've named that episode many things. It's either the railway murders, the Ilma hauntings, (laughs) Nikki's story. So you might have to struggle. It's a really good one. Struggle, go back, try and find it. It's one of those three titles. Now, it was a few years ago we did that, uh, and Nikki and her son had experienced strange paranormal activity in their home. Nikki sought the helps of mediums and investigators. But I remember someone had said to Nikki, I get a strong smell of tobacco regarding the haunting. So kind of tying into what you're saying. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And and the
1: psychic also spoke about the strong smell of flowers yep. with the yep. wife
0: who used to have the flower garden. Yeah. Now, through my research, I found that there is a Uh, theory that's akin to or even connected to stone tape theory regarding supernatural spells. So stone tape theory, as I'm sure most of you know, is the belief that a house or a location that's experiencing paranormal activity has somehow stored some of the events within its walls and is replaying it like a recording. And this same theory applies to smells. I guess you would call it stone smell theory i don't know if it's a separate phenomenon or it's all connected with the stone tape thing
1: yeah 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 i like that idea
0: now in my research like i said i started off on the internet found some stories and stuff and then i kind of ditched them um there are very few books relating to smell and scent in the paranormal and it's possibly because the book i did find does uh, is full of Tons of information, and is a comprehensive study of the topic. So, the book I'm going to talk about is titled "The Brimstone Deceit: uh, An In-Depth Examination of Supernatural sense Otherworldly Odors, and Monstrous Miasma." Which oh, good title? Uh, it's alliteration tastic, I- indeed. Uh, it is by paranormal author Joshua Kuchin. Now. Joshua states quite early in the book that is, it is true that all things supernatural have long been reported to the smell of brimstone, which you kind of alluded to. Now, mm. brimstone is the archaic term, burnstone, for sulphur. Mm-hmm. And when he says all things supernatural, that includes spirits, UFO encounters and Bigfoot. Ah,
1: I didn't know it was associated with UFOs and Bigfoot.
0: Yeah, well, well, we'll come on to UFOs in a bit more detail in a minute. Now, I, like a lot of people, associate the word brimstone with the devil, demons, and hell. Perhaps because yeah. of references to it in the Bible, right? hmm yeah. However, in reality, most of the mentions of brimstone in the Bible are not associated with hell or demonic forces, but rather with those of heaven. Oh, Really? Joshua Kuchin observes that sulfur I like this quote sulfur comes from above not below for example in Genesis 1924 is that how, I never know how to do the the is it 19.24 people who know will know this I don't know yeah uh, it says then the Lord the Lord reigned upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So in the book, he talks about most of the references to brimstone are not for demonic reasons. They're almost God, like putting vengeance on demonic forces rather than the other way around. But the connection of brimstone to the devil may come from the fact that the book of Revelation says God cast Satan into a lake of brimstone and fire. Oh, I see. So he's kind of, he's got it on his trousers. Yeah, it's it's like he, that's his environment now. So maybe this is where the, a lot of this connection, certainly in Western Christian culture of the devil and demons smelling of sulfur comes from. But this godlike connection with sulfur also features in other cultural writings. In Homer's Odyssey, Homer writes, Zeus thundered and hurled his bolt upon the ship and she quivered from stem to stern smitten by the bolt of Zeus, and was filled with sulphurous smoke. Hmm. Well, no messing around there. No, but I'll tell you what it made me think of, Ben. While I was reading that early part of the book, I was thinking about the episode we did last week on the connection between UFO law and the fear of colonisation from mm. technically advanced beings. So in these cases, we have gods who are wreaking havoc, and the strong stench of sulfur represents or at least is a byproduct of their power in a way and and uh, in some
1: ways like a signpost to it as well i suppose yeah yeah
0: definitely mm. i don't even know what brimstone really is it is supposed to be this uh, sulfurous smell of when you kind of rub a stone it kind of gives off that odor is my understanding of it i'm just googling it now ah right
1: i feel stupid now yeah it's the archaic name for sulfur brimstone literally is sulfur
0: there there you go hence why he called the book the brimstone deceit i guess <laughs> <laughs> well for those of you who in the comments called us a couple of clever intellectual
1: funny intellectuals i do apologize for letting you down for not knowing what brimstone was
0: yeah I'm gonna brain the drugs yeah <laughs> I am too. I'm not, I'm not even on them. Um, <laughs> but at this at this point, I, you know, I wanted to point out that this book, The Brimstone Sea, the research in it is amazing. The reference list of paranormal cases and bibliography goes on for roughly thirty-five pages. It's like one of your essays. It really is like one of my essays. Um, one of the facts that about smell that struck me in general, but especially in regards to the paranormal encounters. While visual and auditory memory usually decrease over time, often exponentially in light of new experiences, odour memory remains largely intact, as we were alluded to a little bit earlier. Hmm. Now, this book divides paranormal encounters by type. So should we start with spirit smells? Yes. (laughs) I want to know
1: what spirits smell like. I'm betting either lovely or
0: horrible. You're pretty much on the case here. The book suggests that out of all paranormal phenomena, spirits have the widest variety of reported smells. And they are the only category to present pleasant smells, certainly in Western accounts. Ah, okay. Yeah, some of that stuff that you talked about, the smell of flowers and stuff like that. Possibly those kind of more pleasant smells we often frame those spirits' encounters in the context of deceased loved ones. So as you, you know what I mean, that's what you were talking about. You've got this trope-like situation where male ghosts are often associated with the smell of tobacco, female ghosts with the smell of perfumes or flowers. Although the book does kind of point out that if that is actually to do with the people who are involved back in the day as many women smoked as men did so it's interesting that it's almost a stereotype that's coming through that could be coming through
1: yeah yeah and i have heard people talk about um aftershave as well on men and and i did always wonder if that is the thing and presumably if it isn't just the stone scent thing if there is some kind of um consciousness there whether the the sort of the entity sort of says well what's the most memorable thing about me that i can make people think and so yeah that does sort of make sense like if you always wear lynx africa you (laughs) might as well you might change it to chanel number five (laughs) (laughs) i know so many women who wear lynx africa um (laughs) No, but it's it's because it's that thing. Like I could, I could tell you my grandfather's aftershave, um, well above anything else about him. If it was, um,
0: you know, if it was a ghostly thing, and maybe they know that. Who knows? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, interestingly, not all cultures follow this pattern of pleasant-smelling ghosts. Australian Aborigines believe ghosts smell stale. In Japanese culture, yokai often have a foul odour of decay, Um, and this theme of decay and sulphur also does come across in Western sightings of ghosts, and possibly it is more associated with spirits we have less of a personal relationship with. So, like you were saying, that bit about, you know, if your grandfather came back as a ghost to you, you'd have this pleasant memory of the smell of his aftershave if it's an Mm. apparition that you've got no connection with then maybe it comes across as more as a foul smell instead Mm. Mm. that makes sense here are some examples of what i'm talking about so i've got a couple of stories here they're very short uh there's one about a guy called john cameron who found himself working alone one evening in the 1930s while renovating castle stewart in inverness scotland Says, from the perch atop a ladder, he noticed that a portion of the ceiling sounded hollow when struck. Determining it was part of a long-sealed and allegedly haunted, question marks, East Tower, Cameron began chiselling away in earnest. He soon broke through to empty space. As he did so, he heard a ghostly voice yell, no! Scary. But continued on. (laughs) I'm not sure I would have continued on, but he did. Uh, he kind of convinced himself it was just his imagination. The next blow on the ceiling was answered by a violent shove to the floor, so he's knocked off his ladder, and it was accompanied by the smell of rot. One could argue that maybe the cavity was just full of rot. Exactly. That's, that's what I thought on that first one. There's more, though. Uh, one of the most haunted sites in Australia is reportedly Port Arthur, an old penal facility on the island of Tasmania. Though all of the camp's buildings are home to paranormal activity, the parsonage is the most notorious. It repeatedly features the entire spectrum of spirit activity, temperature drops, unexplained raps, eerie moans, strange lights, and, of course, the smell of decaying flesh. Mm. I've got a couple more. Uh, Northwest... Gwadeer Castle, which I think we've mentioned on the podcast before, in my memory. Yeah, we have, yeah. Uh, It boasts a ghost room frequented by a lady in grey who smells of rotting flesh. Legend holds that she was murdered and walled into the building, doomed to haunt the house for eternity. During renovations in the 20th century, a hollow space was discovered within a chimney breast adjacent to the ghost room, adding credibility to the origin story, I guess. Interesting. The historical Nelson House of Yorktown, Virginia, served as the headquarters for the British general, Cornwallis, during the American Revolution. Later, during the Civil War, it was retrofitted to serve as a hospital. In addition to strange breezes, full-bodied apparitions and disembodied voices, visitors report a putrid, decaying corpse odour one more of these and then we'll move on to some more sulfurous this is all part of the sulfur family by the way but it's not that your stereotypical decay is not your stereotypical kind of sulfurous smell but um, another thing we've Mm. mentioned on the podcast before is uh, a spectacle mr boots in the southern bridge underground vaults in edinburgh scotland now
1: oh i've heard of mr Boots. yeah
0: now allegedly he enjoys sneaking up behind visitors on guided tours Uh, we call him that, Mr. Boots, because he wears knee-length boots, says Dead Brogan, tour founder and author. He's unkept and unshaven and he has very bad breath. We know this because people can smell it as soon as he's spotted and then he disappears. That could just be somebody on the tour, though, couldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I, I know some people like that. Yeah. Also, smells of decay and sulphur are connected to the amateurville haunting, which, are whatever you think about that case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of rotting section. I'm going to run through quickly some interesting stories that involve the rotten eggy smell of sulphur, because that is probably one of the most prominent smells or bad smells. Let's say that you get in connection with spirits. So, Kathy Chadwick Shikoni, what a great name, of Mount Holy, New Jersey, reported the marching boots and a strong sulphur smell in her gift shop. She, she attributes the phenomena to the ghost of a Hessian soldier who served in the American Revolution. In Freeport, Illinois, the former home of Charles Guiteau, the man who assassinated United States President James A. Garfield, was plagued by a variety of phenomena following his execution, including an oppressive dark presence and the smell of sulphur. The West Virginia State Penitentiary, vacated since 1995, is regarded as one of the state's most haunted locations. It's filled with the spirits of angry inmates. One area is renowned for its particularly rancid odour. The putrid stench of sulphur can fill the room, making visitors gag and vomit, wrote Trent Brandon in the Ghost Hunters Bible. Um, now, I've got two more of these. This this next one and then the, the one after this I think will really interest you. While assessing an old Victorian house in Ealing, the father of English ghost investigator Andrew Malcolm Green noticed an odour, sulphur-like smell in a small mezzanine room. Though they replaced the room's floors and plaster, the smell persisted, accompanied by footsteps, shutting doors and moving objects. After research, the home was later revealed to be the site of 20 suicides and one murder. This is the one I think will really interest you, Ben, and you'll see why in a second. I'll see if you pick it up when I tell it to you. There is even an entity in Colorado who is known as the Eggman. What a great name for an entity. <laughs> cuckoo, cuckoo. Yeah. He is short and thin, dressed in a tattered suit, and wears a fedora. He's said to prowl the street ah. Yeah, I thought. He is said to prowl the streets of Manitou Springs, Colorado. In one hand, he clutches a black cane, in the other, a basket or sack of rotten eggs. Because of his melodious load, <laughs> he naturally smells of sulfur and is notorious for accosting lonely travellers at night. His victims are often infused with this potential stench. A 1912 Pikes Peak Journal article seems to provide a clue to the haunting's genesis. On May 31st, a man carrying a sack of eggs walked into a local saloon and shot himself in the temple. But I think the interesting part of that story is I think what you thought when i mentioned a tattered suit and fedora right
1: yeah shadow men and men
0: in black and basically entities that wear fedoras yeah which i'll come on to because they do come into this in a minute in connection with some of the ufo stuff which will blow your mind as well my favorite though sulfur whiffing story centers around (laughs) a movie production in 1993 so the movie, the film Gettysburg, is historical and that it marked the first time in United States National Park Service history that a production company was allowed to film at the actual battlefield. And they used real Civil War reenactors filling out the army as extras. According to one story, a bedraggled-looking gentleman in a U- Union uniform who smelled strongly of sulphur Met several of these reenactors on set, the figure gave them a handful of musket balls and asked, "Rough one today, eh, boys?" He then <laughs> disappeared into the bushes. The perplexed extras later took the musket balls to be appraised in Gettysburg, and they were deemed authentic, more than a hundred and thirty years old. Oh, so an actual relic from a ghost? Yeah. So if you, if you go with it, this ghost in a Union uniform turned up to the reenactment thinking it was real, handed out some, you know, musket balls, I guess, or whatever they were, to the extras, kind of said, oh, it's going to be tough today, disappeared off into the woods, never seen again. When they took the balls to be tested, they were 130 years old. Super interesting. Really Interesting. But he was accompanied by that smell of sulphur as well. Okay. Now, there is a lot in the book about other encounters and smells associated with fairies, sightings of the Virgin Mary, who smells quite nice, apparently. Um, And there is a whole chapter on the Sasquatch or Bigfoot. Now, I feel a little bit guilty skimming over the Bigfoot stories, as I know it's a bit of an obsession of yours, Ben. I love a Bigfoot. But in the interest of time, my summary of the Bigfoot chapter is Bigfoot stinks. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is called a stink ape in yeah, some exactly. Things, Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of that. And he stinks really bad. Poor guy. Yeah. And the rotting egg smell of sulphur is the most common and recurring theme regarding the smell of bigfoot interestingly the yeti doesn't stink it's too cold that that was the conclusion oh really yeah yeah he doesn't sweat now it, oh, the one thing the other thing i'll say about the bigfoot chapter at one point i did wonder whether i'd come up with an explanation for the strange smell of sick in my car Because I read a sentence about a Bigfoot encounter that says, equally equally revolting was the smell described by a witness in Washington in 2005 who detected a foul odour resembling vomit. Maybe you'd pass the Bigfoot. Well, that's what I thought. It made me wonder if there's a Bigfoot living between London and Oxford who hangs around the M40 motorway. (laughs)
1: I wouldn't put it past them.
0: I wouldn't put it yeah. past them. Yeah.
1: So, um, I do, just before you get on, I was, when you talk about the car, I was just checking, I realised that um, our friend James, lawman James, he texted me in the week to say that the back doors on his car had stopped working.
0: Oh, weird.
1: Yeah, but he he's fixed them now. But we got on to talking about gremlins because we were near an airfield when we did the Summerstones. Did an yep. actual gremlin get into our cars? Um
0: Ooh. so that is So what we we've, we've Yes, and the car I used to come down as well. Oh no, I came with you, didn't I? I'm just Yeah, thinking. you came with
1: me, yeah. 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 But so
0: maybe it just it could have spread.
1: Us. It spread, yeah. 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 Yeah, but um, James has done an episode on uh, Gremlins, so check that out on the Lawmen podcast, and we're going to do our own episode on Gremlins, and James is going to join us. I'm just sorting that out now, but we might get to the bottom of the problem uh, with our cars. The the ironic thing is, because I came in my partner's car, and um, it's the same make as your car. Uh, It's Spanish, and I just wondered whether it had a particular love of uh of spanish cars
0: <laughs> wow yeah that's interesting um james's car not spanish though no, no i think his is japanese yeah but still maybe once they're here they're not so fussy well this this is going to be a really interesting episode we need to get some sponsorship by a local car dealer or or, or garage don't we <laughs> for yeah, your yeah, paranormal your car gambling. trouble come to us yeah <laughs> Shall we move on to UFOs, Ben? Yes, please. Well, just like spirit encounters, perhaps even more so, the smell that, most, that is most described in UFO encounters is sulphur, closely followed by ozone. Oh, yeah. The smell of ozone is really weird. Now, this chapter starts with possibly one of the oldest recorded UFO encounters in history. I'd never heard this story before, it was amazing. So, after Vatican Museum Egyptologist Albert Tully passed away in the mid 20th century, Italian nobleman Boris Durakovitz discovered a mysterious papyrus in the old man's belongings. An amateur Egy- Egyptianologist himself, Durakovitz set out to translate the document. Only to discover it belonged to the anals of Fatmos the Third and was dated between fifteen ninety four and fourteen fifty BC.
1: Sorry, did you say Fat Mouse the Third?
0: <laughs> fat, fat, oh, fat Fat Mouse. Oh fat. Sorry, right, right. Not okay. fat Matt. fat <laughs> Fat Mouse the Third would be what a great name that would be. The anals <laughs> of I was fat, wondering yeah. why you were going past
1: it without pointing this out. <laughs> Fatmus
0: okay, fine, fine, fine. That was otherwise, I'd have you heard the annals of Fat Mouse the third, didn't you?
1: <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, wait, we can't just leave that there. Uh,
0: but no, the, no. the annals of Fat Mouse that's a very, very different thing. I'm with you, okay, indeed, indeed. So, anyway, this parchment, which dates between 1594 and 1450 BC, uh, this guy gets translated and he was astounded by what the text revealed the document says in the year 22 in the third month of winter in the sixth hour of the day the scribes of the house of life noticed a circle of fire that was coming from the sky from the mouth it emitted a foul breath it had no head its body was one rod long and one rod wide it had no voice And from that the hearts of the scribes became confused and they threw themselves down on their bellies. Now after some days had passed, these things became more and more numerous in the sky. Their splendour exceeded that of the sun and extended to the limits of the four angles of the sky. High and wide in the sky was the position from which these fire circles came and went. Then these fire circles ascended higher into the sky and headed towards the south. Fish and birds then fell from the sky.
1: So, uh, that phenomena of fish falling from the sky is something that Charles Fort was very interested in. And it is sometimes associated with UFO encounters, but it's hard to decipher what they're talking about in there because it's almost like... um, they're talking about no head they're sort of maybe a sort of aligning it with some kind of mythical
0: creature like a dragon or something because of the fire around it although i think the text it does i mean maybe it's just the way that my brain is trying to interpret it It does sound quite mechanical in the description doesn't it yeah Fire, fire circles and all this kind of stuff um uh it's really interesting though but yeah to think that far back i i mean i we we've done it on the podcast we love those kind of older stories don't they yeah um and there are a few more that uh, were taken from chris obek's book wonders in the sky so i'm just gonna run through a few of these before you do can i just ask how big is a rod do you know? I've no idea. i I'd, i I'd no idea what a rod is, but I guess back in those days it was a... In my mind, I thought of it almost like a walking stick size, but I don't know why I'm thinking that.
1: I think, pleasingly, it's a rod hull. So it's one <laughs> rod <laughs> hull long and one rod <laughs> hull tall, with the circumference of an emu. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. And it's propelled by a hand up its backside. Is that what you're saying?
1: It is. It's a very proprietary British joke for people who yeah. are over 35.
0: Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. We're really appealing to the bulk of our audience. There, we just. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to crack America, okay?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Rod Hull's the way to do it. <laughs> it's all
1: that Rod Hull material I've been storing up for years.
0: <laughs> well, let's, let's look at some, some other historical smelly UFO encounters. A uh, 137 AD sighting of a glowing celestial object that left a smell like burning wood in Forli, Italy. A 1444 sighting of a glowing orb leaving a smell of remarkable sweetness in its wake an 1845 sighting of three luminous objects emerging from the sea near turkey accompanied by an overpowering heat and the stench of sulfur and two one described as two rolling wheels of fire that exploded over the arabian sea leaving a sulfurous odor now a lot of sulfur a lo- well i i'm going to i'm going to quickly run through some more cuz i've got uh, a short list of others really just to a because they're interesting and b just to kind of prove how common the reported smell of sulfur is um but i'll to start with a fact from author eve morgan who claims that 59 of alien abductees noticed a sulfur smell moldy cardboard or wet leather odors in the presence of aliens Fifty nine percent of encounters. Those those scent markers also sound like people reviewing red wine. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So shall I add that? Sulfur smells, mouldy cardboard, wet leather, and a hint of blackberry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With chock- a lovely long tannin
1: finish. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's interesting because. Um, I have come across a few alien encounters where um, people have described uh, an oily substance on the skin which smells of sulphur. And some people have uh, postulated that it might be some kind of fuel from their craft, which I think is unlikely. I think the fact, you know, I don't think they're filling up with unleaded before they leave. But somebody else said it could be Um, if they take nutrients in through their skin so because they don't often appear to be described as having mouths or at least just a slit for a mouth maybe they have to get nutrients in another way so maybe like air plants they absorb it and it could be that the sulfur smell is like the byproduct so they don't excrete through a bowel system they just absorb and excrete
0: through their skin much like a plant that's one theory yep that I, and that theory is touched upon in the book towards the end. I'm going to come to uh, Joshua's theory that he puts forward, which is a little out there, but is very different to oh, that one. Okay, but it's very interesting, at least. But let me quickly run through some of these stories and make this brief uh, because it just shows the wealth of encounters, but also the similarity. So in Skane, County, Sweden, October 1936, five bright orbs in the sky follow a pair of boys through the countryside. The witnesses know a sulphurous odour confirmed by their mother upon returning home. It's one of these names I'm not going to be able to pronounce properly. Daya El Aghori in Monaco, Morocco, July 20th, 1952. A saucer lands and gives a smell akin to burning sulphur. Cornsville, Indiana, autumn 1966, two paperboys report a curved object with glowing lights, noting the odour of sulphur in the air and a high-pitched whirring. Jonestown, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, April 1967, John H. Demler's car stops and is buzzed by a black UFO that has the smell of sulphur and oil. Cusack, France, August 29, 1967. Two schoolchildren observe four little devils, in quotation marks, floating into a luminous orb, which ascends with a soft whistling noise and a sulphurous odour. Ross, Ohio, November 10th, 1975. Two gas station attendants note a bright light in the sky that suddenly blinks out, leaving a strong sulphur odour. Ragusa, Italy, December 15th, 1978. A truck driver noticed an illuminated object in conjunction with two humanoids in coveralls. Following the encounter, his radio begins working again and a strong smell of sulphur fills the air. Saquirima, Argentina, October 15, 1979. Luli Oswald and a student are taken aboard a craft and given sexual examinations, all the while their breathing is made difficult by a sulphurous odour. Duffin County, Pennsylvania, December 4th, 1988. A police officer noted a strong odour similar to sulphur after seeing a mysterious aerial object. Dallas Aragon, October 16, 1990. A glowing disc is seen above a pasture gliding out of sight with a high-pitched noise and a strong sulphurous odour. In the UK, Silbury Hill, England, July 1994. Multiple witnesses camping atop of a historical mound notice a smell of sulphur and burning rubber accompanied by the approach of floating translucent objects. Small luminous beings are seen within the pyramidal shapes, each topped by orange fireballs. Near India- Indianapolis, Indiana, August 23rd, 2005, Dottie Phillips is travelling with her husband when she notices several lights rise from a fire in the distance and start to follow their car accompanied by an odor similar to creosol burnt tar and sulfuric acid the next evening they pass directly under the craft complete with the same smells this is nuts and Dotty's brand new shoes begin to crumble and peel now to, I've got wow. one more two more of these and one that will really set your mind a worry Toledo Spain August 21st 2014. While meditating, a witness spots a large sphere in the sky that vanishes and leaves a very strong sulfuric odour. A large creature with glowing eyes is observed shortly afterwards. This next one will blow your mind. In 1966, in the Tully Saucer Nest case, which in Australia, which we've covered on the podcast on our yeah, Crop yeah. Circles episode, that site after the event was infused with the smell. Of sulfur. And this one, and then we'll talk about it. This one, sulfur also comes up in the Betty and Barney Hill case. Betty Hill reported a pink powder on her dress. Though this powder had no smell, when researchers extracted samples of the powder using water, it gave off a putrid odour. When analysed, the powder contained sulfur, sodium, chlorides and silicon well that's odd i'd never heard that before that's really peculiar me neither because that's you know if that story is true that means there was some cess and actually okay there's this theme of sulfur but for it also to include silicon really blew my mind
1: yeah i mean i don't know enough about chemical engineering to know whether that is actually a very common substance
0: yeah it might not be weird at all but it's stuck out to me maybe i've watched alien too much time
1: yeah no that is interesting but why this why this recurring sulfur theme like is it something to do well it can't just be something... I was going to say the propulsion systems of UFOs, but it can't be because it occurs in all those other cases. Is it yeah. that um, we are mistaking similar smells for the same thing? Or... I mean, I just, I just wonder why sulfur? It seems like such a very... I'm not, I don't know. I mean, picking anything would be strange. We'd be saying the same thing if all of this stuff smelled of violets... It's very odd that there's this commonality between them
0: all. Well, towards the end, I will come on to that because the theory, or I mean, yeah, the theory that's put forward in the book feels way out there, but does make a certain degree of logical sense. So hold that thought for now because I think you're asking totally the right questions. Because at first, I'm thinking, oh, it all comes back to this connection with the Bible and the devil and that we're just kind of projecting it onto all these supernatural events. But certainly the examples of cultures that are not Christian, that have that similar thing, and the way they're described in UFO cases is, it doesn't feel to fit that pattern of the demonic, do you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm saying by that? It doesn't... Yeah. We it do. doesn't naturally translate, does it? No. No, it doesn't. No. Well, let's move on to ozone, which we, we mentioned briefly earlier. So ozone is the second most prominent smell in UFO cases. Uh, ozone is often described as that clean smell, often uh, referred to as the smell you get after heavy rain or the sharp smell you get from overheated electrical wires or radios yes I think sharp uh, smell is a is a good description right
1: it is and um <laughs> back in the 80s
0: ionizers were really popular if you remember those and they used to smell yeah. of that I, I kind of think of it where i used to have a train set as a kid with a big transformer on it and that that kind of smell isn't it
1: yeah yeah it is it is
0: um But what's interesting about ozone it is often used for its sterilizing properties, and I wasn't aware of this. many water companies will add it to drinking water supplies as a kind of way of sterilizing it
1: mm-hmm yeah, that makes sense yeah um yeah, I used to um keep marine tropical fish years ago, and I had a um a water purifying system for the filter of a water-purifying filter system for the tank, which used an ozone uh, filter and a UV filter. So, yeah, I've come across that, yeah.
0: Well, in terms of UFOs, there is a theory that the energy from the object... So this is kind of tying into that theory of is sulphur produced by the propulsion system of the craft is is ozone also connected with that that you know is it reacting with something in the environment to produce the odor so in a non-extraterrestrial example um coronal discharges in our atmosphere have been proven to react with oxygen to generate ozone this process often produces a blue or purple air glow now there are there are multiple reports of smells of ozone and bluish lights connected to UFO encounters. Um, I'm just going to pick one example of this rather than a list. But there's one story about two soldiers in Kazakhstan reported in 1976, an encounter with a pair of short humanoids who were caught, it says, taking plant samples from the railroad, railroad tracks. They, it was accompanied by the odour of ozone the beings whose appearance had been preceded by a blue luminosity with red highlights. The entities disappeared into the bushes. Moments later, an ecliptical UFO emerged from the woods. So there, you know, there's lots of stories of this, this connection between the smell of odour and blue lights, which is, you know, in terms of our atmosphere, it will react producing that colour, at least to us humans... Mm. and at this point it's also worth mentioning the men in black Yes, and another case that we have covered on the podcast before or to at least the person we've talked about on the podcast before ufologist albert bender Mm -hmm. who after a ufo so for those of you don't know he had a ufo encounter uh and then was visited, or more accurately, I guess if you kind of see it from his perspective, was being stalked by men in black. Now, Bender began receiving regular visits from three MIBs, and he says it was always accompanied by the strong odour of sulphur, or decomposing eggs.
1: Which puts them into, um, I mean, we've, we've... The, the debate rages on as to whether they're human or uh, alien or other entities, but that sort of reinforces a they're not, alien,
0: they're not human uh, thought. Yeah. In another Men in Black case, uh, there was a delayed odour uh, that was talked about in John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies in 1968. So a Long Island, New York resident called Jane witnessed a strange bright light in the night sky and shortly thereafter was approached by a man in black who introduced himself as Mr. Apple. On their first encounter, Apple gave Jane a small metallic disc ratcheted in a parchment, and said, wear this always, so they will know who you are. Afterwards, Jane felt extremely dizzy, yet promptly mailed the disc to Keel, Keel found the bulb unremarkable and carefully sent the parcel back as it had arrived. The following day, Keel received a phone call from Jane, who chastised him for bending the disc and tearing up the paper. Further complaining that the disc was now black and smelled like rotten eggs. (laughs) Wow! Wow! Now that's uh, nuts. That is nuts. I mean, I think the kind of slightly sceptic view of that story is Keel found it unremarkable, which don't go into detail what this thing looked like, but, you know, interesting. Let's come on to the theories. Let's kind of just kind of end up with this theories the book does put forward. The book does put forward an interesting theory that connects the spells of all these different paranormal encounters. So the author Joshua Kuchen says, Few have ever fully engaged with the possibility that supernatural smells are intentionally produced. Instead, assuming that the odours noticed by witnesses are a mere byproduct, an unfortunate stink generated when strange phenomena manifest in our reality. This seems a grave miscalculation. Whether... Whatever is behind spirits, UFO, Sasquatch, Men in Black, etc., be it a single actor or multiple sources, it is certainly calculating and deliberate. He goes on to say, Researchers have speculated that certain entities may feed upon strong emotions such as fear. What better way to ramp up anxiety than introduce smells that human beings are hardwired to avoid? so his point being actually if this is some energy feeding entity smell is going to be a big part of his process right right so it's the same it, so this is saying it's
1: like a primal thing so the reason we find the smell of toilets so repulsive is because they will kill you they will they carry diseases yeah, it's they will kill hard you hardwired yeah it's hard oh that makes a lot of psychic. sense
0: yeah Well, he's also got another theory, which blew my mind, which relates to the sulphur and ozone smells in the cases that we've talked about. So he's using some chemical compositions here, but we're basically talking about sulphur and ozone. He says, H2S is far and away the most consistently noted odour and likely appears more often than is explicitly reported. The compound's presence provides a possible explanation for the sensations of paralysis and lethargy frequently described by witnesses. Moreover, subsequent research has shown that H2S induced suspended animation results in a lower lymphatic count. This may also account for missing time reported by UFO abductees. Consider the possibility that one singular phenomenon wearing many hats wishes to put us into an altered state of consciousness to facilitate interaction with it, an interaction accomplished by introducing suspended animation. So basically what he's saying, Ben, is some sulfurous substances are being used by aliens to put us into a suspended state that makes us more compliant to receive whatever message or whatever they're trying to do. And the second most common UFO encounter smell is ozone. The sulphur compound SO2 is an ozone precursor. It causes acute simulation of the triminal nerve. So the theory, simply put, alien creatures... First, asleep or suspended animation that accounts for the smell of sulfur. They then bring us back with a stimulant that accounts for the smell of ozone. This process can cause confusion, possibly even facilitate screen memories as a byproduct or a deliberate act. So
1: he's proposing that smell is the key to the unified theory across all of these paranormal events yeah
0: Yeah. he's saying that this could account for the sulfurous smell in spirit sightings bigfoot but really they are all ufo encounters
1: wow wow okay so there's a conscious entity and 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 he does extend this to ghosts as well yeah
0: absolutely yeah
1: but to what end? So I think
0: I, well, that's the question, yeah. I mean, he doesn't go into that. But, I mean, it's out there, but it... And I, I have to say, I love the book. It On the scale of... in our quantum mechanics scale of believers to doubters, it definitely leans on the believer end of the spectrum. But it's a really intriguing thought that because I'd never really connected these smells. And, you know, why sulphur? Do you know what I mean? Why rotten eggs? But that his theory may be be kind of, you know, post-rationalised, but it does make sense. The rotten eggs are somehow some anaesthetic that produces that smell. And ozone is the stimulant that's used to bring us back. And forget.
1: It is a good theory. It is a good theory. Um, the, I suppose the scary thing about that is
0: there's an assumed
1: nefarious reason for doing this.
0: yeah, I mean, he doesn't really go into much more detail than they're using this system in order to communicate with us there's doesn't really go into the why and you know w- it's a bit annoying because they could just send us an email you I think mean, wouldn't you
1: we don't need all of that stuff like so he's basically saying that you know m- my uncle terry is coming back with the smell of lynx africa is them a ufo landing in a schoolyard and frightening some 11 year olds and spelling of sulfur that's them and then Bigfoot stomping through the forest and lobbing stones at you, that's them as well.
0: Yeah, or, or a screen memory. Or a
1: screen memory, right, right,
0: okay. Because if but, you think about it, I know you, you're a Bigfoot fan. I, I am a Bigfoot big, fan. Yeah. I find Bigfoot a bit, yeah, I, can't, I don't believe in all that. You but, don't like feet. I don't like feet, <laughs> uh, big or small. Um, but um, and again maybe this is post-rationalizing but putting it in the context of a screen memory that actually you know if you do like if i'd seen a bigfoot on the m40 (laughs) and i told everybody about it we'd be laughing right everybody would be laughing at me there is a difference yeah i mean people would if it was a ufo encounter but i think it would be less ridiculous than a bigfoot encounter in people's minds so as a screen memory it would work right
1: yeah 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 i you've you've really got me thinking um i can't remember the name of the author he's a british author and um i do apologize i can't even remember enough i think his first name is paul but i can't remember his surname so i can't google it on the fly but i was listening to him being interviewed um before christmas and he was talking about an encounter that he had when he was young uh, when he was walking back with his parents from I think it was either they'd been at Friends or something like that but it was dark it was late it was winter and in the field he saw um, small animals like a a domestic rabbit and a guinea pig and he wanted to go over and and pet them and his parents were very insistent that he shouldn't and then later he realized that it was in his interpretation there were alien beings there who were projecting the image of something that would be attractive to him as an eight-year-old boy to get him to go over so he wanted to go and pick up the rabbit and bring it home but there was no rabbit and his parents could see that because for some reason the spell was broken or whatever and that that is very similar to what this author is describing
0: yeah definitely and i my brain uh, went to thoughts of we talked about briefly on the podcast before this idea that you know we always think that let's let's go with ufo let's say it's a ufo phenomena we always go with this theory of they're trying to kind of hybridize (laughs) the human race or take us over or kind of you know the why question effectively But I always think of it in the context of... And it sounds flippant, but, you know, maybe they're just making a wildlife documentary on us. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's that's why they don't want to be seen, that it's not some big kind of conspiracy. It's like, you know, like when they send those cameras in to kind of film elephants and penguins and stuff and they dress it up as a penguin and it's got a camera inside so it doesn't freak them out. Or even... This idea of kind of you know, when we tranquilise animals and fit a tag to them so we can kind of track their activities and migration. Yeah, it could be something as simple as that, which would also kind of tie in with this process. Maybe that's all they're doing. They're going, Oh, we'll just kind of we're gonna tag a few and see how it works. <laughs> with a you know, even with a camera. Well, they've been Maybe doing they've got this a mini cameras. So
1: yeah. Yeah. They've been doing this for so long that they've got some hell of a budget.
0: Yeah, but so's David Attenborough. Think of that. Yeah, they've only been yeah. doing it as long as David Attenborough, well, unless you go back to the historical thing. Yeah, that is...
1: I mean, it's an all-encompassing um, theory and it would explain like the biblical stories and stuff. I guess... <laughs> Uh, To use the words of Alan Sugar, the hunt continues for not the apprentice, (laughs) but for what is the theory? What is it they're trying to actually do? Because that communication, it's not very effective. If we can't even discern the difference between what's going on, it's not very effective. Mm. So as you say, maybe it is an observational thing and we're not supposed to know. But either way, it's quite, it's quite, it's
0: quite scary. It is quite scary. It is really scary. Maybe I'm saying the you know the wildlife documentary thing because it makes it less scary. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) In some ways, well, I can fully recommend the book. uh, And there's so much we haven't covered, so go and read it. It's called The Brimstone Deceit. It's by Joshua Kuchin. It's published by Anomalous Books. Uh, I got a Kindle version. It was about eight quid, I think. uh the uh, other copies hard copies are available i think around 20 quid something like that it, well worth it just in terms of actually the history of cases and cast you know there's a whole thing about travis walters and the smells that he had with the kind of fire in the sky and it's really good from a certain perspective but it's really good well for eight pounds i smell a bargain oh, oh, oh. i'm you sorry you
1: sniffed one out have you <laughs> you can tell the drugs have taken over what is in Lemsip?
0: everybody knows you were going to make that joke <laughs> oh, God. let's put everyone out of their misery um yeah, just before we go
1: thank you for the new reviews we've had um that was very kind of you we do always ask for reviews because it does help on discovery you know how how hard it is to find a podcast you want to listen to last i looked there's 2.6 million podcasts in the world and wow. uh trying to find us is pretty damn difficult so um if uh if you can leave a review it helps it raises up on the algorithm in apple uh and uh, all the other platforms as well if you leave a review on those But otherwise, please just tell a friend if you like us. If you don't like us, please don't tell anybody. Keep it to yourself and pretend (laughs) you haven't seen anything. And we're back next week. It's uh, our 150th show.
0: Oh, exciting. Yeah. Well, we're not going to spoil it and tell you what um, we're going to do because I've no idea what we're going to do, but um, it'll be good. Well, I would spoil it, but I've got no idea either. (laughs) This is how we roll at the Quantum Mechanics. Um, Whatever, we will be back next week with something and hopefully something good. So we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Quantum Mechanics